welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we are releasing a bonus episode where I am the guest on a podcast. Um, the podcast is Appalachian Renaissance with Chris White. Now, Professor Chris White is a history uh, professor at Marshall University. He was actually featured in our show on episode number 56. Um, such a great guy, and today we talk a lot about the importance of teachers, especially through the pandemic where we haven't had as much one-on-one contact with the teachers in our life and, and what that meant to us. I was able to talk about some of the highly influential teachers that I've had in my life, from Kathy Atkinson, if she's still around, teaching me drama back in at uh, East Midville University, Louis Sylvester, my English teacher, Matt Beaudry, my hockey coach back at UVU. Uh, We also talked about Derek Parra, the gold medalist who helped teach me speed skating. We were able to talk a lot about um, Bob Sibahar. He taught me metabolics, uh, former guest of our show. Um, we also talked about Mickey Bendor, John Franco, Dr. Chris Kenobi, Dr. Ben Bickman. All of these people were so influential and important in the way I understand um, life and my career. So big shout out to them. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you do, please make sure you go over to Apple Podcasts and give them a rating and review. Again, it's Appalachian Renaissance with Chris White. They do a really good job putting the show together and they would really appreciate your support. So without Without further ado, here is my ep- my episode with Chris White. Welcome to COVID in Appalachia with Chris White. Today we'll be speaking to Casey Ruff out in Utah, but first I want to tell you a little bit about our topic today. It's all about teachers. You know, during my childhood, there were at least a strong handful of teachers who made such a great impact on my life, and I constantly draw upon their influences to this day. And it occurred to me This is an important topic to discuss with Casey, as he is a very positive person with his own podcast, Boundless Body Radio. He's also a personal trainer. He has lots of energy and a thirst for both knowledge and to help people maximize their life potential. And I figured he must have had a lot of great teachers as well. And of course, there are a wide range of teachers that are out there, some magnificent, others just okay or mediocre or even quite bad uh, that we could discuss as well since those all have influence on our lives. Uh, So today's podcast is really to discuss how important teachers have been to our development. You know, we're, I'm I'm not sure what your age is. Uh, Casey, what are you? 37. 37. Okay, yeah. So I'm in my 40s and he's in his 30s. And and we, it's just occurred to me throughout this pandemic that my kids and uh, others that are their age, teenagers and young people, they don't get to experience the same kinds of developmental milestones and interactions with teachers that, uh, that I've been able to experience. And it's quite frankly brought me to tears a few times thinking about gener- a whole generation of people that are having to experience that. And, and maybe I'm overdoing it too, but, but if nothing else, I wanted to not just honor teachers, but also highlight what our students are missing out on this year by that lack of strong connection that we, at least I can speak for myself, um, took for granted uh, during my childhood years. And so maybe, maybe they're not totally missing out, but at least they're experiencing less of that connection with those great teachers that during their COVID year, because even though they've had school, it's so modified and separated from human interaction that this year will be unlike any other in our nation's history. And, and of course, you know, uh, what, how that turns out is, uh, is going to be for us to determine the, the coming months and years. Of course, there were wars and other disasters that have disrupted our lives but in the past, but we have to wonder what effect this year will have on our youth, given that there is no natural flow of learning that has occurred for the past year. Uh, teachers and coaches, all those kinds of things, they have to, we have to moderate our interaction with them. So first, Casey, uh, I bet you've had a lot of great teachers in your life, but how important do you think teachers have been and have, uh, let me rephrase that, how important do you think teachers have um, as an influence, or how would you compare, that is, the influence of teachers to parents? That's, yeah, that's a really great and nuanced question. I think, I, I guess I would say that teachers offer a different perspective than what you would normally get in the home. I think your parents have had, you know, 
a, a certain way they were brought up and a certain way that they teach you, which is great. And they have that experience and you learn that experience, which is great. But that's only the experience of two people. And that doesn't give you access to other ways of thinking about things, other passions, um, other experiences, other nuances. And so I think teachers offer um, a, a greater vision of the world than what you would normally get just with parents. I think a lot of the way, you know, we were evolved in the way we grew up was generally in, in, you know, bands of hunter gathering tribes that maybe had, you know, 50 to 150 people. And you just learned from all of them. All of them had kind of different experiences, but it was, it was all egalitarian and everybody kind of lived together with each other and everybody took part in raising children. And so it seems to me that the diversity of learning expands so much with our different teachers that we have. And it's, it's, I mean, I think teachers have done an incredible job this year and, and they're very flexible and adaptable and, and they've done such a great job adapting to these circumstances, but you're right. It's tough. It's, it's just, it is what it is tough for kids not to have those experiences and, and, you know, play around with other kids and other teachers and, and be able to learn from them. That, and that's a good point too. that last part is, um, in, in particular, because it's not as if, uh, I mean, I shouldn't give short shrift to the uh, learning environment that we have created that teachers have been able to create in the past year. And as an example, too, I mean, I'm, I'm almost 47. And, uh, and a few months ago, you got in touch with me and, and uh, got me in touch with Rich Condit, and he became a teacher of mine. And then I've learned from many of the people that you've interviewed on your podcast, Balanced Body Radio. And, uh, and so that probably wouldn't have happened if COVID hadn't happened. So, so you know, and, and kids are, uh, kids have a lot of ingenuity and, and they're probably figuring out how to educate themselves as well during this yep. time. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's such a funny point. Um, you're right. None of this would have ever happened. Our, our company, Boundless Body, would not be a thing if it wasn't for the pandemic. We'd still be working for the same corporation we were working for before. So it's funny, funny how life goes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh, but at the same time, as you mentioned before, you know, those parents are just two people. And even though they're probably the most influential people in our lives, um, then it's not that kind of diversity. And especially when people are locked up inside, essentially locked up with just their parents when the kids are then it's got to be uh, difficult and they probably want to stretch their, you know, their boundaries and, and reach out. So I'm curious, uh, who was the first teacher who had an important influence on you? So that's funny. I've been thinking a lot about this in preparation for this interview. And I actually went back to some of my books um, that my parents put together. My mom in particular put a bunch of picture books together of growing up. And I went back and tried to find some of my class photos because it, I don't, I don't remember a particular person or a particular teacher. Um, I probably just have bad memory, I, but I remember the, the feeling, the sensation. And, and I, I guess, you know, I look back on a picture of myself, it, you know, going to first grade, my little backpack and my, you know, new shoes and my dopey haircut and, and all of that stuff. And I, I can't recall who the teacher was, but I do recall feeling safe. I feel like it was a space that, that, you know, was kind of scary and intimidating. And there's all these kids I didn't know, but I remember the teacher kind of bringing people together. And I remember feeling that, you know, comfort and safety. And, um, I, I think that was such a great part about, you know, where I was brought up and the schools that I went to is I, I, you know, I, I emphasize, empathize with people who, who don't feel that same safety going to school, but that's, that's what I can recall. Um, it wasn't up until about the fifth grade that I started remembering like who the actual teachers were, the people that really, you know, helped me along the way. But initially, I, yeah, I can't, I can't recall so much like a name or a, a, any specific incident of something they did. I just remember feeling a comfortable and safe environment growing up, which is, which is, you know, nice. It's something I realize a lot of people don't have. Yeah, and I imagine uh, that that's di different than now, especially even if a kid is just inside their own room on a computer screen, um, they don't necessarily feel safe because the pandemic is happening uh, and they right. don't have that kind of, uh, and you would think, I mean, you were safe, you weren't thinking of pandemics, you were thinking I'm safe because this, this adult and this school is providing this environment for me that's geared towards making me feel safe so I can learn. That's right. That's right. I can walk through my neighborhood. I can you know, walk to school, I can sit in this classroom, whatever we learn is what we learn, but, but it was a feeling of comfort and safety for sure. And, and then kind of moving on when you're older, I mean, did you have some other, some coaches or some teachers maybe that stood out for you when you were still in those uh, early years or, or do you remember the first time you started to kind of remember people's names? 
Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, one in particular wasn't actually one of my direct teachers, but was a, a drama teacher that I had kind of forgotten about. Um, Mrs. Atkinson was her name. And she had such a passion for acting. I, I enjoyed acting. It wasn't ever something I was like, good at I just kind of did it as a hobby or you know did it because I had to I can't remember but um one particular play I did in fourth grade I remember she directed and flipping through those children's books yesterday I remember seeing her name and I remember that her infectious passion for acting and acting properly and really putting your whole self into a role um I think I was Casca and Julius Caesar or something like that but um yeah I, I, that that is somebody who you know you, <laughs> you don't maybe think of them as somebody who had like such a direct impact on your life, but looking back, maybe they made a bigger impact than what you initially realized. So she was one that was a standout for my elementary years. Nice. That's, I can just visualize that too. And I just imagine how many kids are missing out on that. That fear experience uh, is so important. Uh, One time I was really in theater in college, all of us came down with the flu on the set, but we were all happy to be with each other though. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and how about, uh, how about coaches? Do you remember uh, coaches or, or people that kind of got, cause you're in fitness and, and health. I, I just kind of imagine you might've had some coaches along the way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I was, yeah, I was fortunate. My dad, um, does, uh, he's a journalist for a local TV station. He does sports. He's an anchor. And so I was exposed to a lot of sports growing up. And so I played all kinds of things and pretty much anything you could play. So soccer, baseball, basketball, football, like all of those sports um, in Utah were huge fans of the Utah Jazz. And so it was, you know, afternoons, you know, playing, you know, I'm, I'm Michael Jordan, you're Carl Malone or John Stockton, whatever in the driveway. Um, so we had a lot of coaches then, but I have to say it wasn't until I got to college that I really had the best experience with one of my favorite coaches. Um, I was, uh, at a small school, um, playing ice hockey for, for the team. Um, they basically needed warm bodies, just people who could throw some skates on and be there. Like I wasn't very good, but, um, I realized up until that time that even though hockey was a great passion of mine, it wasn't something I ever had a really strong coach with early on. And coach Beaudry at the university of, um, Utah Valley university, Um, was the first one who was a real mentor and a real great coach and taught me the values of hard work. Um, He treated people fairly. um, But, but also like, if you wanted, if you wanted ice time, you had to prove it. You had work, you had to, you had to skate, you had to skate hard. You had to give it all um, every practice. And it was a lot of practices. And that was, that was one that I look back and think that, wow, like that was, that was a great coach that taught me not only the skills, but also work ethic that, that has definitely carried on through the rest of my life you get a sense that the that coaches in your life were maybe had an outsized influence than like school teachers or can you balance the two that's a really great question i would have to say probably but maybe that's only because i was more passionate about sports than i was about my schoolwork <laughs> I sure. probably buckled up my schoolwork a little bit more um one one school teacher that really stands out too i was a senior in high school and you know, in Utah, we talk about the Valley being kind of like a bubble, like there, despite having lots of different teachers, we don't have a ton of diversity around here. Um, but, but I, I remember in 12th grade, I was a senior. Um, it was, uh, Louis Sylvester was his name. He was teaching AP classes at the time, um, AP English in particular. And we took, um, we took his class, me and a bunch of my friends, we took AP English and we took a film study from him. And I remember it was right after lunch and those, those two classes alternated on A days and B days, basically. So, so we ended up seeing him pretty much every single day in the afternoon, one day would be film and one day would be English. And, um, you know, we were eating standard school lunches back in the day, which were not very good. And so most of the time after lunch, when we had his class, I would be extremely tired (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and falling asleep during film school or film class. But I remember in film class, we watched um, Seven Samurai and Casablanca and all these like classic movies, Charlie Chaplin movies, North by Northwest, like movies that I would have no business watching. And sometimes I fell asleep, but I remember talking about these classes and learning about these, or talking about these movies and the culture behind them, and what the storyline was. And it's just something I would have never been exposed to. He was really somebody who taught me a lot about thinking, about free thinking, about, you know, making your own decisions and coming up with your own opinions. And he ended up also, 
you know, in the English side of things on the English class, we had required books that we had to get. Um, Sid Hartha was one, Jonathan Livingston Siegel was one, just, just kind of almost like esoteric books, the power and the glory. Um, again, they're books that I would have never been exposed to. I definitely didn't read them when I was supposed to. I would flip through and make up reports and just write blah, blah, blah on, on a piece of paper and turn it in. But it's funny, I kept the books and, you know, 10 years later, started flipping through them and, and reading these books that are now some of my absolute favorites. Siddhartha is one of my absolute favorite books ever about um, a, a, a kid in India who grows through spirituality and goes through all these different lifetimes. He gets rich, he gets poor, he gives everything away, comes back. And it's such a beautiful story. That's a, a crazy, amazing journey by um, Herman Hess. I, I would have never been exposed to that. And I'm just so grateful that even though he didn't impact my life, so much while I was going through it. That's something that carried over later in my life that really helped me see the world in a different light, I guess. So why do you think you revisited it later on? It, it, you know, it was just one of those things that like, I just, I mean, I just had it. It was just sitting around on a shelf and I, I, I don't know, I, I kept it and moved it around with me in all these different apartments. And it was just like taking up space. And, you know, I guess, I guess I found my passion for reading a little bit later on and for whatever reason, open it back up and like, wow, like this is what he was trying to teach me back then that I was faking my way through and making up book reports is now something super meaningful and has so much impact in my life. And is now a book that I've read many times in my life. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know what made me open it back up the second time or not donate the book or get rid of it somehow, but I'm sure glad I didn't. <laughs> Sometimes I just wonder, because I was the same way, I didn't really get into it until I was in my mid twenties. And um, I just wonder if sometimes we're spending way too much time trying to cram this stuff in culture and information into kids heads when really they should be spending half of their time outdoors and doing things with their hands and exercising and sweating and interacting with each other and they can't really appreciate it i mean how can somebody appreciate uh to kill a mockingbird or um, or even the bible or whatever it might be whatever piece of you know classical um literature or or what or religion to until they're really an adult you know, you, yeah. you just cram it and say, learn this Bible when you're, when you're two years old, yeah. I mean, you know, or 10, they can't understand that. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but you no, know, I totally, <laughs> totally agree. I, you know, recently in the last few years, I've learned, I, I want to say it's the Amish who do a lot of their own education kind of by themselves. And the way they do it is, is very interesting like they have their classrooms and they talk about the topics that they talk about and it could be math or English or whatever, but they don't, they don't make kids go. And they just find that some kids want to go and learn and they read books that they want to read and they study the things they want to study and they're useful and that's great. And they get that type of education. There's other kids that want to go catch frogs and there's other kids that want to go make a barn with their dad. And they just allow for that. And they just understand that this kid is naturally going to be a contractor. He's going to build things. This kid is going to work with animals. They, these people are going to be book smart. And then there's, there's no problem. There's no difference with any of them. And they just allow them to learn in the right way, almost the way we do like a Montessori school today. But it's, it's just so much, it sounds so much more natural. Yeah. That, when you were talking, since you and I both have an interest in kind of this ancient history of humans and evolution and all that, I just imagine putting a whole bunch of hunter-gatherer teenagers inside a building for eight hours a day to learn stuff on a board from one person at a time. Wow, there's so much life going on outside. And that wouldn't have been tolerated. And we've conditioned our people to believe that's the way it is. My kids totally. are, they don't see, they don't see sunlight for eight hours a day. Oh, They're trapped inside this building the whole time. Wow. And yeah, I mean, it's gotten worse over the years too. Less PE, less outside activity. Wow. And yeah. Yeah. It's so weird. And it's like, they can't concentrate. So we have to get them medications to focus and they need Adderall. And that's so weird. Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah. Right. Who would have thought that they would rebel against something like that? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think that theme about how coaches could also be, um, maybe even more influential, uh, kind of ties into that too. It seems like it's much more natural for us to, uh, to, especially as we're growing up to to want to be physically active and so maybe it makes sense that a coach would kind of be a, like a relief you know when yeah. we're growing up and and we would gravitate to that and they yeah. you know it's not like kids who uh, don't like hard work as you said you know you weren't as inclined towards school at the time same with me 
but it's not like you were afraid of hard work. The hockey coach made you work hard and you were into that. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's all about finding the, the, the child's, you know, right motivation so that we can educate them the right way. And maybe that's the best way forward. And I think good, good teachers do that. Yeah, definitely. How about some others that you can think of? One that really comes, comes to mind, um, is somebody that I met later on in life. Um, he's also somebody I've had on the podcast. Uh, he's a gold medalist, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, and he lives about 15 minutes away from my house. So when I was 30 years old, I was looking for a sport to do in the off season. It was, you know, something I wanted to cross train for cycling. And it was either going to be like cross country skiing, or it was going to be speed skating. And we're fortunate again, that the the Olympic oval that was used in the 2002 games has been kept at like tip top shape. It's mm. 15 minutes away. It, the, the building is just electric. You can just feel like Olympic energy. It's so cool. And, uh, I was 30 years old. I went and watched, um, one of the qualifying events for the 2014 games in Sochi. And I thought like, Hey, like I can skate, you know, I, I played hockey my whole life. This would be fun and it's close and convenient. So I started to get into speed skating. And getting into speed skating when you're 30 means you get into a development program with a bunch of eight-year-olds. So you can imagine how awkward and bizarre that was. And, you you know, you think of hockey and speed skating as similar because you're on ice, but they are so different. These blades are really long. You trip on them all the time. The edges are completely different. They're razor thin. And it was just extremely difficult to, to kind of pick up the sport. And the first night I go, I'm in this group with a bunch of, you know, eight-year-olds. I'm this dopey, you know, 30-year-old dude wearing like cycling stuff. And I see Derek Parr, Derek Parr, gold medalist, 2002 games, wins the 1500, blows the roof off the building with energy when he won. And he's there and he's not working with Olympians. He's not coaching the adults. He's, he's there to coach the kids and he's Mm. putting so much care and effort into coaching the children that I ever saw him coach anybody else, including Olympic athletes. And that's just somebody who, you know, he's got the technical know-how he has the work ethic. He battled and battled to get there. A lot of people don't know. He actually qualified for the 1998 games in Nagano in the 32nd out of 32 spots. And the night before his event in Japan, due to a technicality in a, in a previous race, they found that another athlete had beat him by 0.15 seconds and moved that other athlete into 30 second, 32nd place. And Derek Parra going to Japan the night before couldn't race, but Man. still again, put the work in one gold has used his, you know, talent, but has used it to help other people and the, the, the caring nature and, and, you know, treating everybody like they were the same. He was such an inspiration, such a cool guy. And, um, just an amazing coach and a huge influence on my life. That's, that's such a cool story. And I love to hear about uh, people like that who have reached such an elite level, who are also, uh, still going back to their roots and, and quite humble and approachable. Yeah. Yeah. He's the best example of that. He's such a great guy. And, and how is it that you got into physical training? Were there teachers involved in that? Yeah, there was. Um, so I, you know, I, played sports. I was cycling. I used a heart rate monitor and that was fun and a cool way for me to train. And I would record all my stuff. Um, when I did that, I, I, I joined a gym, a local gym. I needed again, something to do in the off season. And I just started watching the trainers in the gym. I was studying architecture at the time. I had no interest in being a, a trainer, but watching these trainers and how technical they got with their program design and how they use the heart rate monitors made me really interested. And so, um, I walked into the office of a manager and asked what I needed to do to be a personal trainer. And, you know, they gave me the, the online certification. I went home and studied for a few months and got my certification and, and started training in 2007 and really have just loved it ever since. But I'll say one of my favorite trainers or I'm sorry, favorite influences and teachers since then, um, was a guy named Bob Sibahar. He's a coach out of Colorado. Um, he really changed my mind about diet and endurance sport in a way that has influenced my career, um, put me on a whole new trajectory of, of what I did and how I coached my people. And I, I have to say, he's the first person that really, again, kind of deflected my career in a certain path. And 
what an amazing guy. And I've learned so much from him and his book called uh, metabolic efficiency training and how to teach endurance athletes, how to burn fat rather than carbohydrates for fuel. And, and so even just in my life, when I used to go on rides that we bring a bunch of sugary products and, you know, the gels and the, the bars and the snacks and all this stuff to keep your energy up. And through learning from him how to burn fat as fuel, I don't do any of that stuff now. And I, I feel much better for it. I've got way better performance and I've been able to help a lot more clients through that kind of pathway. So he's been a huge influence and a great coach for me. Gosh, and it makes me wonder too, for decades, they were doing that. And the influences of those people, I mean, was Dave Scott uh, burning uh, just uh, straight up carbohydrates when he was winning the Ironman? I mean, that's right. I wonder, right? Yeah, Must have been. That's right. That's right. And and all these at marathon runners too, and uh, and their their influences must have been compelling too. I, I just wonder, are we going to turn this around again in a decade? That now that we're running fat for fuel, are we going to turn it back to something else later on? Is it going to be protein for fuel eventually? Yeah, sure, exactly. <laughs> Where, um, <laughs> my favorite video, you'll have to look this up, is called "Time Traveling Nutritionist." Um, mm -hmm. I think it was Funnier Die that did it, and. This, this couple in the 60s is sitting down to eat breakfast and there's a big flash bang and some nutritionist walks in. He's like, wait, <laughs> you can't eat the egg. The egg's bad. It's going to kill you. They're like, wow, thanks. That's great. He goes away, flash, comes back. Wait, the protein, the egg white's fine. It's actually the yolk. Don't eat the yolk. And he comes back and forth. And forth. <laughs> and so yeah, we're always, we're always uh, proving ourselves wrong in the nutrition field for sure. <laughs> Yeah, that, I definitely wonder. I was talking to Mark uh, Kugazel about that again. I had him on the show a second time, and uh, and I was just kind of wondering, well, how do we know exactly that? I mean, we're because he mentioned that people had debunked the China study, you know, and, and I thought, well, but how do we know that we're debunking it? How do we know that was less rigorous than, uh, you know, Tim Noakes is a great example, right? He, for years, he was saying, uh, use carbohydrates as fuel, and then he was convinced the other way. Yeah. I mean, it seems like that makes sense. It does. But uh, it's, it's, I think the best example is when you look at the Pacific Islanders or anybody who's an indigenous Islander, um, and then you, uh, and then you, they get conquered by a Western society, and their health uh, indicators always go down. They get diabetes, and they, their life expectancy, they're, they're severing limbs, you know, because they're living on, um, on, uh, on uh, carbohydrates and all that, whereas before they were living on fish and coconuts. Sure. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We've been fortunate enough to have a few um, archaeologists, paleoarchaeologists. We just had Dr. Mickey Bendor on our, our show and got to ask him a few questions about how we evolved. Um, and, and one of our other guests that we had earlier this week told, put it in a really interesting way, and I really like it. He said, you know, if, if you put human evolution into a time frame like a week, um, inside that week, we have been like raising grains, annual crops for maybe like the last 15 minutes. And we've been counting calories for like the last 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. And so where my mind goes is what, what is the most logical thing that we've done for the longest and what things have changed in the short term? So if we think that, you know, all those things you mentioned, diabetes, heartbeat, heart, heart disease, obesity, we didn't see a lot of that in the past, but in the last hundred, 200 years, it's it's on a steep decline. We have to look and see, okay, what what has maybe changed in that short period of time, and maybe less of like what's changed in our evolution. And it sure seems like smoking cigarettes, vegetable oils, processed grains, sugar, refined sugar, like all those things keep seeming to come up as like, okay, this this seems like a pretty good culprit. So hopefully we are learning as we as we go and admitting where we're wrong and and always learning. But yeah, it it sure seems like those are the the, the shorter, the, sh the things that we haven't had in our evolution forever seem to be causing the most problems. Uh, that's a great way of putting it too. And and as uh, someone who looks at history, I should always remember that and that perspective. But getting back to the theme of, of teachers too, there's something, you know, teachers, if you spend a lot of time with a teacher in the room every day, especially in public school, then they can have a lasting impact on you. I took a nutrition class my freshman year of high school and the teacher was promoting um, the, you know, kind of the food pyramid idea and, you know, being exposed to those lessons day after day by an, a very kind person um, who I trusted and and, uh, and come, came to care about, uh, that kind of becomes embedded in my mind for some reason, even though I think a lot of what she said wasn't true. I know a lot of what she said wasn't true. Sure. Yeah. No, that's a great point. I think we're all doing the best that we can with the knowledge that we have now. And the problem with science, well, not the problem with science, but the truth of science is it's, 
the best you can do is like be less wrong. You you never really arrive at like this is the answer. We proved it. It's done. It's it's always kind of a hypothesis, and a good scientist is always questioning that. And so, I, so many people in the nutrition world have great intentions, and they are very caring, and they they want to give us good information. And sometimes it's it's not the teacher; it's the information. And we're always learning. And and I think part of it has to do with intentions too. If the person's trying to just kind of convince you of something, and they don't really care how they get to it, then that's problematic. And and so, kind of along that same theme with teachers, can you think of Something that something like, I don't know, maybe an, uh, an untouchable or an indefinable quality that some of the teachers that were most influential on you had, like, what was it that they did that was different than the ones that don't stand out? Um, great question. It's, I, I do think it's that level of care. It's, it's being heard. It's being understood. It, it, the good teachers that I remember, I, I, I really feel like they, they weren't talking at me. They were talking with me. We were having a conversation. We were bouncing ideas off each other. I remember, <laughs> I remember one that like threw me the complete other way. I love astrology. I love the cosmos and the stars. And dude, when I was in high in middle school, like I had a book that had every, you know, Mercury, Gemini Apollo mission. And I knew every astronaut and what they did and what, mm. what they're, what they were, you know, doing up in space. And so in college I took an astronomy class and it was, it was like, I was so excited. This is my science credit. This is going to be great. And the teacher was so disengaged and would sit up on his desk and just talk at us. And there, there was no interaction and it made, it made astronomy. I think I said astrology, astronomy. so boring i hated i hated that class and i i think if i think of what the good teachers had and what this guy didn't have it was that level of care and and the ability to have a two-way communication you're almost like you're bouncing ideas off each other the way i coach my people now it's like I, i'm not i can't i'm not going to fix you i can't help you besides like giving you some goal markers and you decide what you need to do but that's a two-way communication i think that's a that's a big thing that separates good teachers and bad ones do you think because when you mentioned astronomy, I was thinking my astronomy class, the guy was actually quite detached, wouldn't interact with the students very much. However, the impact of his lectures was amazing. He mm. he was it was like he was his own person up there. We knew he, he was definitely trying to deliver the information to us, but he wouldn't talk to us. We couldn't ask questions in class. We had to wait until after like a lab. But even then, he was reluctant to answer questions. He was so superior to all of us, and yet. The impact was amazing. And so uh, I think it was because he was dedicated to his subject. I mean, he, you could tell he cared that we learned, but he didn't care about us. And that, and that was okay, I think, in the end. <laughs> so maybe, was there something about teachers that are detached maybe that, um, I mean, can you think of a role for teachers that are detached in a way from their audience um, because they're trying, they just care about the subject enough? Yeah, I mean... Gosh, I don't, I don't know a ton about the system, but those, they seem like they would be best in like a research kind of a, a, you know, application where maybe they're not the ones communicating, but they're the ones that are learning and researching and, and, you know, discovering those things. Because I, I do think you need a, a super deep understanding of a topic to be able to break it down and continue swimming when the water's getting deeper and deeper. Um, I think of I think of another one of our guests, Dr. Chris Kenobi. He's an ophthalmologist in Texas. He um, was clinical for his entire life. He said he was a terrible public speaker, um, but he kind of found his passion when he started uh, researching toxic vegetable oils. And he realized he needed he he realized vegetable oils were a, a, a very very close to being proven as a like primary cause of age. Um, age-related uh, macular degeneration, mm. um, which is what he studies. And he realized that he, he had the knowledge, like he knew this topic up and down, but he couldn't communicate it. He, he didn't have the skills to publicly speak. And well, I saw him on stage in March of 2020, basically the weekend, everything was shutting down. And I was like, man, this guy is super dynamic. He knows how to communicate. He's on stage and just put on this amazing presentation. 
And I had no idea that five years earlier, he could not have done that. And so it's, I think it's cool that he was able to learn the topic, but also realize that if you can't communicate that effectively, people aren't going to learn. And so he had to go through the skills to learn how to publicly speak. And now he's really good at it, but that's part of it too. It's, it's, it's one thing to know something, but it's another thing to be able to commu- communicate it so that people can understand. Well, and, and that kind of uh, brings me to the other side of, um, of the question about the role of teachers. And that is when the actual teachers uh, become learners themselves too. And that, I think, uh, you know, like you yourself, I mean, you are, you're guiding people, you're teaching them about nutrition and, uh, and wellness, but you're also learning too, right? And that helps you become a better trainer, I imagine. So it's, but it's difficult, I think, to balance that, to figure out, well, to what, ex- as a professor, for example, you know, a lot of professors, they're not going to learn from their students because they're the expert. I go into the classroom wanting to learn from them. Just as much, you know, I'm, 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 it's a two way street. I'm getting out of them, wow. this relationship. Yeah. Wow. And so I wonder if you could talk about that, how that's, um, I mean, I imagine that's how it's been with you. I'm not sure though. Yeah. Oh, Have you learned from your clients? <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and that's, that's part of why I like doing a podcast is when I'm in a session with somebody, I am counting to 12. <laughs> I'm telling them to do a bench press. You know, I'm doing the stupid personal training things that you need to do. I'm doing program design and all that other stuff, but this is a one-on-one human interaction that I'm having with somebody. And that person is paying me to count to 12, but they're also paying me to talk to them, to relate to them, to help educate them and give them ideas. And that's a two-way street. And I think every interaction we have is an opportunity to learn from somebody. Um, And so, man, I like, like with interviewing you, I just, I thought so many times, I just, this is the teacher that I would want. I I can tell that level of care is there that you don't just talk to people. You try to relate to people. Um, I just heard another one of our guests, Ben Bickman get asked, like, do you, do you actually really memorize your students' names before they even come into class? And he does. He, he, before he starts class with kids, he, sees their faces, he learns their names, so that when they're walking in, he's he's calling them by name. Like that level of attention and care mm. is so amazing. And your opportunity to learn from anything, from anyone at any time is only limited by your willing willingness to learn it. It's like the saying goes, like when the student is ready, the teacher appears. There are lessons to learn everywhere from other people, from experts, from infants, from birds to blossoms. I mean, you name it. There's always learning that can be done if you're willing to to learn it. I'm so glad you mentioned uh, birds and blossoms too, because something's occurred to me during COVID, which is when I see, I've well, in one instance, a few months ago, um, when the sun, well, I guess it was in the summer, uh, in the morning, I just saw these two little bunnies in a meadow <laughs> just down the road from my house. And they were just basking in the sun. They weren't doing anything. And I thought, gosh, I mean, they are out there fighting for survival all the time, and yet they're clearly doing nothing right now. <laughs> and and so that's okay for me to do too. That was that's a lesson so from nature, right? That's amazing. There's, there's so much to unpack there. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they're not always having to, you know, run around or hide or eat or find shelter. They were just chilling. Yep, yeah, for right. a few minutes, enjoying the sunlight. And it's okay oh, it's for beautiful. us to do that too. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. The, the art of non-doing. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And so um, can you think of kind of how your process, your, your mindset or your knowledge base has changed since you began uh, physical training? And, and what is the what are some of the things that uh, have caused your those changes? Well, yeah, I mean, geez, I, the, the things... I cringe a lot when I look back on some of the things that I was doing personally. And I was telling people that, that I couldn't have done any different at the time. And I, I don't think, I don't think that the de- like, we never arrive at the destination. Like the destination isn't the goal. Like learning everything isn't the goal. It's, it's the journey. It's about learning as we go and perfecting and evolving and things like that. And, Oh, it, it's totally different. I mean, I'll, I'll give you two examples. The first one in particular is diet. I, we were telling everybody, they needed to count their calories. They needed to have lots of whole grains. That that to me, just if 
if that's true, it just never worked for me and my clients. That's all I'm going to say. It's like Dr. Kukazella, your, your former guest. He said, I, I just, I couldn't make it work. Like maybe it's great. And that's awesome. I, but I have not seen it work. I'm paraphrasing him. And, yeah. and I, think, <laughs> I think that's a big thing. We were telling everybody to avoid fat, for example, that if they ate too much protein, that would be a problem. And none of those things really panned out. And I couldn't get, I couldn't get those people to get really good results. Um, when I started, you know, getting into the more lower carbohydrate world, it seemed like everybody got results. And so I, I, I don't care. Like it doesn't make a difference to me whether somebody eats one thing or another. It doesn't, I don't, I don't get paid by a food company or whatever, but I, you know, I have, I get paid for getting people clients. And so I'll do whatever it takes to get people clients. And just in my experience, more of the low carbohydrate way of eating and, and lifestyle work better. So that's what I'm going to do until I learn something different. And then the other thing that I really learned is more along the exercise portion of things. I mean, we were focusing a lot more on doing lots of cardio, um, lots of treadmill work. That was just as important as strength training. And my, my, my thinking on that has really evolved. And I think that really basic strength training, simple lifts done with a challenging weight is one of the most effective things you can do. And, you know, where we were giving people tons of sets and reps and complex you know, we used to call them functional workouts where you're jumping around and trying to act like whatever sport you were doing. Like if I was playing hockey, I would do movements that look like hockey in the gym, but my understanding has changed in the way that like, none of those things are actually hockey. Like if I want to be good at hockey, I need to go skate. I need to play hockey in the context of ice and my equipment and the weight of the puck and the stick and all that stuff with other people playing defense. Like that's where you develop the skills. But I think that the gym is more for building strength and metabolically. I think that's the most beneficial for people. And so, yeah, I've really changed my, my thinking around that as well. But again, all of this is an evolution and I could learn something tomorrow that makes all of that null and void. It's just trying to figure out what's best. And there's my dogs. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and that's what I think is so important too, because you've been doing it since 2007. Is that right? Yes. So you got 14 years of experience and that there's a lot of back and forth and reading and talking to people and experimentation, which is repetition over and over again over the course of years to get to that point. And you probably didn't have to worry except for this past year about something disrupting it, a big gap in the amount of time, right? You had that flow state, right? Like um, Csikszentmihalyi talks about in yeah. flow. And, and that's what I'm afraid we're losing not to think cynically, I'm just kind of raising the question for anybody who's thinking about this right now is like, um, we're, we're kind of, we're disrupting that flow for that we kind of count on usually. And I mean, if it was a war, then we'd have destruction in its wake, but also we tend to learn a lot from wars. And I, I don't look historically and, and, and realize that we learn a lot from pandemics as much. I could be wrong about that, but, um, but it's, this pandemic year has become so politicized in a lot of ways, and our kids are not happier as a result of that. And I'm afraid that they're not going to have that same flow, which took you 14 years, right, to get to, to change all your thinking to. And now you're solid with it, and, and you're finding a lot of good results. And if there had been a year of interruption in between, maybe that would have diverted you someplace else. Like, it has kind of diverted you online more now, too, right, yeah. with this. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I, I just thinking about what that effect is going to be on our kids. That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I can just say for us, we were fortunate. We were put on furlough that weekend in March of 2020. And I realized that something bigger was going on that I didn't really understand. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and so for me, we had time because we were placed on furlough. Um, and, and I just decided like, okay, my learning for fitness and nutrition probably needs to go on pause for now. And I need to learn about this virus. Cause this is, this seems big, something's yeah. going on. I, I don't know what's up. And so rather than go to a lot of the news outlets, I decided to try to find the experts. What are the epidemiologists saying? What are the virologists saying? And it was pretty early on that we, we decided like, this is, this is going to go far longer than people think. I mean, people were thinking like, like Easter 2020, everything was going to be fine. It's like, no, no. this not, not at all. <laughs> if you, 
if you follow the same people, they just haven't been wrong that many times about this. And I'm, I'm, again, I'm fortunate that I was able to find some of those experts and learn from them. And we just decided that we needed to pivot. And, and that's why we started our business. And it's just more about training our few clients, you know, in safe environments. They weren't really going back to the gym. They weren't going to travel back. Anyway, all that is to say that things, things like pandemics, you mentioned wars, it, it's, it, it is destruction. A lot of people get hurt, but it's an opportunity. Yeah. And I hope people see that as an opportunity. I hope that, that people realize like everybody who is way overworking, super unhappy, they, they, you know, had, didn't have enough time at home that maybe they got a bit of a pause and maybe they got a bit of a, a chance to do something. And I just, I, I want people to know this is a tough time, but it's also a, a time to reinvent. And if you have a passion, if you've got something you've been thinking about, if there's something you want to start, if you don't think you have a voice, like you totally do. And it's, it, this is a chance. This is an opportunity, just like every other hard thing that happens in life. And so, man, I'm, I, I, I'm with you. Like, I, I wonder that question all the time, who is going to take this time and is going to benefit from it and is going to learn from it and is going to progress and grow and understand people better, be more mm. empathetic and listen more. I, yeah, I, I hope we don't waste this time. I think we could have done some very simple things that people were saying we should have done to be somewhat prepared for this. And it caught us so flat footed that we had this pandemic that's still raging on. And yeah, I, I wonder, I wonder that same question. I hope, I hope we learn. I hope we do. It occurs to me too that uh, really the the big question is uh, how well is the coronavirus going to act as a teacher of of mankind? I mean, it is shaping us. It is making us think differently. This microbe that we cannot see is making us change our ways, and and hopefully we will buckle down and learn from it. Smartest people in the world, I think, are these virologists and doctors who are. Um, who have been telling us from the beginning to watch out for this. And they've, they created a vaccine and they've been telling us all about the context of it. Maybe we can become more science oriented as a I result. Hope so. I hope so. I mean, the social components of teachers and students not being face to face, that's something that's tough and that's gone away. But yeah. we have an opportunity to bring that back, hopefully, as more and more people get vaccinated. Um, the vaccine has been shown to be safe for adolescents, which is great. The, the yeah. Pfizer. And so, it, we're we're very resilient. Humans can come back from very difficult things. It's whether we do it, you know, with that learning and understanding, or whether we do it kicking and screaming. But I'm I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. I I, I think we'll come out of this better. And how did your first vaccine dose go? Oh, it was great. Oh man, yeah. it was awesome. We had the exciting, right? It's so exciting. We had a, an appointment schedule for two weeks, and um, I just kept clicking refresh on one of the pharmacies that that maybe had it and it was kind of a mess but i just click 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 and we had one pop up on a saturday which was last week for us and we went in and in and out and boy it was it felt amazing it felt great that's great which one did you get i got the moderna okay yeah me too no side effects um I felt a little off that day and I don't know whether I was actually feeling off or whether I was asking myself a million times, whether I felt off or not. And I was kind of like influencing my thinking. It was weird. If I had a fever the next day, it was like, it was just warmth. I felt like tons of energy. I went walking longer than I normally do. I went on a way long bike ride. I cleaned the whole house randomly. So for hmm. me, it was great. I had no, no bad experiences whatsoever. And so, and, and in fact, in that way, the mRNA vaccine was uh, teaching your body, right? I'm, I'm really, really stretching on this metaphor here, right? But it's teaching your body's immune system to respond to that spike protein. I love it. That's a great yeah. way to say it. That's a great teacher. <laughs> well, um, uh, unfortunately, we've got to close on. I'd love to be able to talk to you uh, again sometime and hopefully we'll be able to meet up uh, sometime in, in Utah or, or elsewhere. Uh, in person, because I, I really enjoyed our, our talks the past uh, on and off for the past uh, few months too. It's been great. You've been doing great work, and it's an honor to be here. I appreciate it. And so um, I'll close the same way that you always close, which is how can people find your work? Oh yeah. So um, our website is probably the best place. It's myboundlessbody.com. Um, they can also search for the podcast. It's Boundless Body Radio, and we're on all major platforms. Um, yeah, anybody can reach out anytime if you've got questions, if there's anything we can help you with, if you want a free meal plan, just reach out. We're here to help. 
Right on. Thanks so much, Casey. And uh, for those of you out there, uh, I'm going to take a little hiatus from the podcast for a while to deal with some uh, issues in uh, in work and personal life, but uh, hopefully we'll be on again sometime soon. And if you get an opportunity to get vaccinated, please do so. For those people in uh, that go to Marshall University, the vaccine has now been opened up to all college students. So pay attention to that, please, and get uh, your vaccinations. It was the the only time in my life that I've been happy to be sick. I, I had a bad reaction to both of them. I shouldn't say bad fever, and uh, but now I feel so much better. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Casey. Take care. So thanks again for listening to this episode, a bonus episode of my appearance on the Appalachian Renaissance with Chris White. Like I said at the beginning of the show, if you don't mind, please go over to Apple Podcasts and give them a rating or review. Um, Let them know that their content is important. Uh, It's something that really helps them out. Thanks again for listening. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.